Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Andy, one of the ministry trainees here um, at Moorlands. And today, um, we're reading from Philippians um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Uh, that's on page 1178 in your red Bibles. Um, so I'll just give you a moment to, um, to find that now. So Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning and um, good to see some new faces here as well. You're very welcome, as, as Nathan said. Uh, my name's Joe. I'm going to be leading us through this passage. Let's pray again as we, as we come to God's word. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we hear your words now, you would bring light by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to love and serve him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as Nathan said, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Philippians this morning. And it's a very different world to the world of 2 Samuel that we were in last week. We've left King David and his battles behind for now. And we're jumping into this letter written to a church in a place called Philippi. 
Now, the letter is written by the Apostle Paul and his companion Timothy. We see that in verse 1. And one of the big reasons why God has given us this letter is to teach us how to think. To teach us how to think rightly. As I've read this letter over the past couple of months, that's a theme that has come up again and again. What does it mean to think rightly? What sort of mindset should we have? I want you to consider with me as we begin the many different ways that your thinking is being shaped and has been shaped over the years. It's shaped by the people you spend time with, isn't it? Their opinions and ideas influence your opinions and ideas. It's shaped by the things that you read, the Facebook posts, the news articles, the novels, the Reddit threads. It's shaped by the TV you watch, the podcasts you listen to, the magazines you browse. And it's shaped in all sorts of subtle ways by the advertisements you consume without even realising it. And the book of Philippians is here to cut through all of that and to teach us how to think rightly. Now already you might raise an objection, surely there isn't a right way to think and a wrong way to think. And that, that is true, isn't it, for lots of different things in life. Some things are just a matter of choice and opinion. The colour you choose for your curtains, for example, is a matter of choice. But Philippians is not interested in the colour of your curtains. It's a letter that deals with the most fundamental matters of life. And central to this, as we've already been thinking about this morning, is our thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to think rightly about him? Now, you might be here asking that sort of question for the first time, perhaps. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? And if you're asking that question, then brilliant. This is a letter that is uh, brilliant for you. And if we are Christians and if we are following Jesus as our Lord, then how can we think rightly and live rightly as his disciples? Now, when we get to Philippians chapter 2 in a couple of weeks' time, we'll read um, this verse on the screen, where Paul says, Your attitude, or in other translations, your mindset, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is the essence of right thinking, to know Jesus and to share his mindset as we live in this world. Now, as we look at these first 11 verses of the letter, we get an insight into Paul's way of thinking for this Philippian church that he's writing to. Now, you might know uh, from Acts chapter 16 that Paul was one of a group of people who started this church in Philippi, and he's now writing to them from prison to encourage them to keep sharing the mindset of Jesus as they strive together to tell others about Jesus. Now, as Andy read these words um, to us just a moment ago, I wonder if you got a sense of the affection and love and warmth with which he writes. His words are, are dripping with love and affection, aren't they? He's given us a window into his thinking and into his heart. And there are three aspects to it that we're going to see. We hear him give thanks. We hear of his yearning for them. And then we hear of his prayers for them. So we're going to think about those three things. Let's begin in verses 3 to 6, where we see that Paul is thankful for his partners in the gospel. Let's read verses 3 to 6 again. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, as Paul sits in Rome, in prison, probably chained to a prison guard, and as his mind turns to these Philippian believers, he's full of thanksgiving, isn't he? Every time he remembers them in prayer, he thanks God. And did you notice who it is that he thanks God for? Look at all the alls in these verses. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now we see in verse 1 as well, he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now this sets the tone really for what we're going to see in the rest of the letter. We don't hear Paul rebuke the church like he does the Galatian church. We don't hear of some of the problems in this church that we see in a church like in Corinth. Here is a church where the whole church family seems to be on track. And that is why Paul can think of them in the confines of his prison cell and thank God for them with joy. But what is it, you might wonder, that fills Paul with such joy and thanksgiving? Well, two things. The first is in verse 5. He thanks God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the first reason why Paul gives thanks, because this church is partnering with him in the gospel. Partnership is a word, if you know Philippians, you'll, you'll know that this idea of partnerships comes up again and again in the letter. And it's sometimes translated as sharing or fellowship. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that occasionally I find people who share a similar taste in music to me. It's rare, but it does happen. And at that point, we can enjoy a nice conversation. We share a common love of strange instrumental jazz. But that's not the kind of sharing that Paul is talking about here. It's not as if Paul and the Philippians get together occasionally for a chat about their shared interest. This partnership is much more active and involved. It's a contending together for a common goal. It's a side-by-side working together so that the gospel might advance in this world. And from the first day until now, these believers in Philippi have served with Paul, partnered with him in this work of the gospel. Now, as we go through, we'll see examples of this in the letter. These believers have served with Paul and partnered with him. Um, and one example of this is their financial generosity. When no one else supported Paul in prison, they stood with him and they gave financially to his work. So this is why Paul is brimming with thanks. Here's one of the reasons. Not because he has friends in Philippi or that they have a shared hobby necessarily, The reason he's thankful to God is that he has gospel partners in Philippi, people who have served and strived with him. That's the first reason. Another reason why Paul is thanking God for this church is because that partnership that we've just been talking about is evidence of God's work among them. I once entered into an informal business partnership with my brother selling logs to people in the local villages where we lived and we'd source the wood, chop it up, split it and then drive it round in a trailer to the people in the local villages who had log burners. We were in partnership together. But even though that was an enjoyable gospel, well not gospel partnership, business partnership, there was nothing notable about it, nothing particularly notable. But the partnership we read about here in Philippians is anything but ordinary. This group of people in Philippi that Paul is writing to have changed their thinking and they now base their lives on Jesus Christ. 
They are gladly giving time and energy and money to partner with Paul to tell people about Jesus. There's no financial gain for them. They're not going to win any popularity contests. And so Paul looks on and he says, that is clearly a work initiated and sustained by God. Look at verse 6. Paul is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul prays for his partners in Philippi and he thinks about all the ways that they've been working with him for the gospel, ways we're going to read about in the letter, and he knows that that has to be a supernatural work of God. There can be no other explanation for how this group of people is living and thinking and speaking and giving. This is God's work. And if God has started this work in Philippi, then God will keep it going until the day of Christ Jesus. Now this day we read about here is a day we'll see more about in chapter 2 in a couple of weeks' time. The day when Jesus will be revealed as the rightful Lord of this universe. A day when every knee will bow before his throne and acknowledge who he is. It's a day of rejoicing for all of those who have turned to Jesus before that day. But a day of horror for those who will face him on that day as their just judge. But Paul says, if God has rescued you now and begun a good work in you now, he will not leave that work unfinished. It's not like the project that you might do in the workplace that is never completed. It's not like the airfix model that is left unpainted on the shelf. The work that God has started in his people, he will finish. And we can be sure of that, can't we, because of what we know about God's character There is nothing lacking in him. He's not deficient in power or in wisdom or in strength. And that means there's nothing in this world that can hinder his plans to save and to persevere his people. Nothing will take him by surprise. Nothing will throw his plans off course. Paul looks on, he thinks of this church in Philippi, and he knows that God has begun a work in this church by saving them and enabling them now to partner with him in the gospel. And God will not stop that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul is so eager to thank God in his prayers, because this is not Paul's work, this is God's work. And so he thanks God with joy. And one of the things to reflect on from these verses as we, as we seek to apply them together is whether we share Paul's joy in gospel partnership. If we're Christians who have the privilege of partnering with other Christians, is this something that we regularly thank God for? I think that grumbling can sometimes come easier to us than gratitude. But it seems, just reading through these verses, that gratitude came much more easily to Paul, didn't it, than grumbling? And particularly when it came to his thoughts about his partners in the gospel. I've been dwelling on this passage this week as I've gone about my life and and ministry and I've been reminded what a joy it is to have colleagues to work with in gospel ministry, to have a church family who can partner together to serve Jesus, to have a fellowship of churches in our area who we can pray for and partner with, to have dozens of people outside of Lancaster who have given to our recent Building for Growth project. Partnership in the gospel is a wonderful gift of God. Do we thank God? Well, let's come now to the next couple of verses, and I think they're intriguing verses for Paul to write. I wouldn't have expected them reading through. 
we've looked at Paul um, tell the Philippians that he's praying for them. And then in verse 9, if you just glance down at verse 9, he then makes it really clear what he's praying for them. But then you have these couple of verses in between, verses 7 and 8. And in these verses, Paul takes a step back and he says to this church, just so you know, it is right for me to feel this way about you. I mentioned that these verses are brimming with warmth and love. And here is where it reaches a level of affection that might be too much for some British people to handle. We see that Paul is yearning, longing for his partners in the gospel. Look at the way he defends his feeling towards them in verses 7 and 8. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, we thought at the start about this idea of thinking that comes up in the letter of Philippians. And it's worth knowing that this word feel in verse 7 is this thinking word that we see elsewhere in the letter. It's not just an emotion that Paul is talking about. He's saying to them, it is right for me to think this way about all of you. So if we want to know what it means to think rightly as Christians, as we think about other Christians, what it means in particular to to think about those who partner with us in the gospel... And here is part of the answer. Paul's joy for the church in Philippi, his thankfulness, his overflowing thankfulness to God is based on what we read in these verses. Now to start with, he thinks this way about the Philippians because, verse 7, he has them in his heart. I'm not sure if we can imagine an expression that goes deeper than this one. He has them in his heart. The believers are lodged there. They're at the seat of his affections. And again, we need to see that this is not just because Paul gets on with these people or that they're particularly lovable. He has them in his heart because whether he is in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of them share in God's grace with him. This sharing is that partnership word again. They are co-partners, co-sharers in God's grace. Now, this grace is the grace of being able to serve Jesus. The gift of grace is the gift of gospel partnership. And whether Paul is in chains or if he's out defending the gospel, the Philippians have continued to stick with him and to stick with Jesus. They've not shrunk back in embarrassment. So that is why Paul has them in his heart. His affection for them is connected to his partnership with them in the gospel. We see a similar thing in verse 8 where this affection uh, reaches new heights. Verse 8. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now the problem with telling someone what you feel or think about them in your heart is that it's hard to test that, isn't it? How do you know what's going on in somebody's heart? Especially if you think about Paul in prison in Rome, right into this church in Philippi. They're not even in the same place. The only person who knows what's going on in the heart of Paul is God himself, isn't it? And so Paul does something quite unusual here. He calls on God as his witness. If the Philippians were able to ask God to testify to what's going on in Paul's heart, God would say, yes, Paul is longing for you. 
God can testify to what Paul is thinking about the Philippians. Now, this idea of longing comes up again um, in chapter 4, verse 1 um, on the screen, where Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, same word, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He talks about longing for the Philippians, and it's connected here with them standing firm. He yearns for them, he longs for them, he prays for them because he wants them to stand firm and to keep going in the gospel, not to lose heart. And he longs for them, verse 8, with the affection of Christ Jesus. I've been at two weddings over the past three days. It's been a wonderful joy. Um, And I've seen and heard of the love that is shared between married couples. It's a wonderful thing to witness. But you see that Paul's affection here is something quite unique. The affection that flows from Paul's heart is the affection of Jesus himself. Now, the word affection here is is the Greek word splagnon. Um, It's a fun word to say. Feel free to to try it later. Um, It's the word that's used to describe the way Jesus responds to crowds of people in Matthew chapter 9. He looks on the crowds and he has compassion, affection for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. In some of the older uh, Christian writings, it was sometimes translated as bowels. It's a word that is is used of our inner parts, the very depths of who we are. It's a deep, almost gut-wrenching affection. And Paul says that the way that Christ experienced affection for his people is the same way he experiences affection for the Philippians. I long for you and for your continued progress with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul and the Philippians have been brought to the same Lord Jesus. They have served in the same gospel. And it is their shared partnership that leads to this affection and longing and joy. This is Paul's defense of the way he thinks about the Philippians. It is right for him to think this way about all of them because he has them in his heart as his treasured gospel partners and because he's constrained and motivated by the affection of Christ Jesus. That is why he longs for them like he does. And that is also why he prays for them like he does. The way we think about a person will affect the way that we pray for them, won't it? And so if Paul yearns deeply for the Philippian church, if he has them in his heart, if he has the affection of Christ Jesus for them, then We wonder, how will he pray for them? What kind of things will he pray? And for us, if we deeply love other partners in the gospel, then how should that change the way that we pray for one another? That's what we'll see in our final point. Paul is praying for his partners in the gospel. Now, let's look closely at this prayer, and I think we'll see just how different Paul's prayers are um, to, to ours. And this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot in these verses and they can be a little bit tricky to understand the sort of logic of what's going on here, but it it might help you um, to see that he's only praying 
one thing for the Philippians, really. It's there in verse 9. Everything else flows from this one request. Do you see it in verse 9? This is what I'm praying, he says, that your love may abound more and more. That's the prayer, that your love may abound more and more. This whole passage has been packed full of love and affection as we've been uh, seeing as we've gone through because they are bound together by the gospel of Jesus. But Paul is not content with that situation. His prayer is for an ever-increasing abundance of love in this church family. What will that mean? What will it mean to grow in love? What will it mean for the Philippians to grow in love? Who will they grow in love for? Now, Paul could have quite easily added a couple of words in here, couldn't he? Um, Such as, I pray that your love for one another might abound. He says that in other letters to other churches. Or he could have said, I pray that your love for the Lord may abound. But I wonder whether he deliberately leaves it ambiguous here, because both aspects are in view. He wants their love for the Lord and their love for one another to abound more and more. And do you see that this growth in love is connected to what they understand? He's not praying for a sentimental Hollywood love. He prays that their love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight. Sometimes in Christian conversation, the the head and the heart are, are pitted against each other as if they're enemies. People say, you're focusing too much on the mind, and you need to focus a bit more on the heart. And I think there's a, a, a dangerous false dichotomy going on there. Now, it's true that we, we don't want just knowledge. We're not simply brains on sticks, as one Christian writer likes to put it. We don't just download information, and that's that. But neither are we all heart and no knowledge. It's interesting, isn't it, to see that the love that Paul prays for, it's a, a knowledge-filled love. A love that has depth of insight into who God is and what his ways are, what he's done as we are shaped by his word. It's this God-centered, knowledgeable love. Love without knowledge is not the love that Paul prays for. Rather, he wants them to think, to dwell on the things that he's going to unpack in the rest of this letter so that their love would abound for God and for one another. So this is Paul's prayer. Here's the, the sort of heart of it. He wants love to abound in the Philippian church family. And the rest of these verses are telling us what happens when love abounds. What's the result of that? Why is he praying that? What's the the purpose? Well, let's look at verse 10. He wants their love to abound, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Our lives are full of decisions, aren't they? I was interested to know, how many decisions do we make in a day? So I I googled it, as you do, to find any answer. And do you know what the answer was? How many decisions do you make on an average day? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Two million. (laughs) Not two million. Ben? 150. Good guess. It's actually... Oh, yeah, Barnaby? 200,000. Wow, there's a range there. Um, (laughs) 35,000 decisions each day. Now, I'm not sure how somebody measures that. Um, You go through your day sort of checking down every decision that you make. But it's a huge number, isn't it? That's about 250,000 decisions a week, nearly 13 million decisions a year. No wonder people talk about decision fatigue. And Paul wants the Philippian Christians here, in all their decisions, to be able to discern what is best. 
could be translated to approve the excellent things. When they have to make decisions about what is right and wrong, whether to go this way or that way, whether to choose this thing or that thing, he wants them to make consistently excellent decisions. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I'm sure at loads of times you've asked God to help you in your decision-making. But in these times, our prayer is normally that God would give us wisdom to make good decisions. Lord, help me to be wise so that I can discern what is best in this situation. It's interesting, though, isn't it, where Paul starts here. Lord, help them to be loving so that they may be able to discern what is best. He doesn't pray that their wisdom would abound more and more, but their love would abound more and more. In other words, we will not be able to discern what is best in life if we're not growing in love. But if we're growing in love for Jesus and love for others, and if our character and our values are shaped more and more so that we are loving people, then we'll be able to discern and choose what is best. The reason I so often make the wrong choices is because I fail to act out of love. Instead, we act out of selfishness or pride or anger or envy. But Paul prays here for deep love that flows out from the gospel of Jesus so that our decisions are motivated by the right things. We could sum it up by saying that our character will always affect our choices. And the more loving our character is, then the more excellent our choices will be. And Paul prays us again with the future in mind. He has his eyes again fixed on the future day of Jesus. Let's look at verse 10 again. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It's a bit hard to see um, this in our translation, but there's another step in Paul's logic here. He's saying, I pray that your love may abound so that you may be able to discern what is best so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's another link in the chain here. And so if we live our lives growing in love, discerning what is best, then we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here that we can work our way to purity and perfection just by making good decisions. I think he's saying that if we continue to discern what is best and live our lives for Jesus. And if we stand firm in that right to the end, just like he's longing for for the Philippian church, then we will appear before the throne of Jesus as one of his pure and blameless people. Added to that, finally, is this idea in verse 11 that he wants them to be there on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I don't know why, but I've been visualising this a little bit like a tractor pulling a trailer full of the fruit of the harvest. Just imagine that tractor going from field to field, collecting the wheat or the grain from the fields, and it arrives back at the farm, and the trailer is filled with the fruit of the harvest. I think this is what Paul is longing for, for these believers, that they would arrive on that last day, and that they would be able to look back on lives lived well for Jesus of decisions well made, of people well loved, standing there filled with this fruit of righteousness, all of these good deeds. And like with verse 6, this is ultimately the work of a gracious God. This fruit comes through Jesus Christ, he says. 
Growing in righteousness is spiritual growth. It's supernatural growth, which is why Paul doesn't just command the Philippians to grow. He prays for it. He prays that they would grow. And if this is a spiritual work only achieved by God and his grace, then ultimately, verse 11, all glory and praise will go to him. Do you see that Paul prays for an abundance of love, leading to an abundance of good decisions, with an abundance of righteousness there on the last day, to the glory and praise of God? What a wonderful God-centered prayer to pray for his partners in the gospel who he has in his heart. I want to conclude our time together by reflecting on how these verses should shape um, our church family. But if you notice that Paul writes these words and he doesn't give any specific commands. I don't know whether you you teach the Bible, sometimes you're kind of looking for a command that is given. There's no sort of specific commands that he gives. He more describes what he's thankful for and he tells them what he's praying for them. And I think that helps us to reflect on this passage along the same lines. To first ask ourselves, is this the the kind of church we want to be? And if it is, then this is the prayer that we need to pray. So firstly, is this the church that we want to be? There are lots of ways we might describe a church. There are lots of ways that we might want to describe our church. We want to be a welcoming church, a friendly church, a praying church, a training church, a multicultural church. All of those things are are great things. But the best way I can describe the Philippian church from what we've seen so far and what we'll see in the letter is that they are a gospel church a Jesus church, a gospel family. That is why Paul can pray with such joy and thanksgiving because the gospel is the thing that is shaping their priorities and their finances and their prayers and their meetings and their thinking and their witness. It's their partnership in the gospel that leads Paul to rejoice. Is that what defines our church? Is that what we want to define our church? And the Philippians set us an example here, I think, because their partnership was a a whole church partnership. It it was an all-in partnership. That's why Paul thanks God for all of them. In this church family, they were not the committed and the less committed. They were not the gospel partners and the gospel passengers. There was an attitude across the church family of putting the gospel first. Now, as I say that, I imagine there were some of you listening who are thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't know whether you're sort of thinking along two lines. Perhaps you might say to me, Joe, well, this doesn't apply to me because I wouldn't call myself a Christian. This whole idea of partnering together with other Christians just seems a bit strange. Well, I say to you that the more you come and listen to the Bible, particularly the book of Philippians, then the less strange this will become. As you come back in future weeks, you'll hear of the way that Jesus Christ served you by leaving his throne in heaven and laying down his life on the cross. You'll hear of his resurrection to new life and his rule over this world. And you'll hear of the glorious prize that awaits all those who trust in Jesus, the prize of being home with God in a glorious new world with a glorious new life. And as you hear of that, I hope you'll begin to see that changing your thinking and beginning to live for Jesus is the only life that begins to make sense. Or perhaps you're here and you're, you'd say to me, well, 
yes, I'm a Christian, but this life of all-in gospel partnership is not really for me. I don't really have much to offer. I don't have a whole load to give. And if that's you, then I think this, these verses should act as a real encouragement again, because presumably this church wasn't made up of extroverted, energetic, efficient Christians. I imagine it looked like an ordinary church with people who were a bit older, with a bit less energy, people who could tell stories of their real suffering, people who were struggling with all sorts of long-term sin, young people who were finding it hard to stand out in this world, parents who were finding it hard to have energy for another day. It's an encouragement because all-in gospel partnership doesn't need to fit a particular mold. It's simply putting the gospel first in your circumstances in life. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century Baptist preacher, had this encouragement for people in his church family who were a little bit older and who perhaps didn't have the energy that they once had. And I think his words apply to other groups as well. He said, we can always do something for Jesus if we are willing. As we are not too old to receive grace, let us not think ourselves too old to use it, for it is given to be used. There is as truly a service in the church for the most venerable, it's a good word, isn't it, as for the most active. Let no man cut himself off from the privilege of serving the Lord Jesus from the first day until now. As we go on through Philippians and we learn what it means to partner together in the gospel, this is something for all of us. This is the church that we want to be, a a Philippian-like church, a gospel church. And if that is what we long for, then verses 9 to 11 are a prayer that we need to pray. Paul's instinct when he thought of his gospel partners in Philippi was to pray for them. He, He knew that no amount of teaching or commands or restless activity could bring about the work that only God could do. He needed to pray. And so let me ask you, are you committed to praying the same thing that Paul prays for his partners in the gospel? To pray that for people in this church family and to pray it for people who are living and speaking for Jesus in other places. Paul prays for love, which will be worked out in excellent decisions with a view to the future day of Christ, all to the glory of God. Why not begin this week to pray these kind of prayers for your growth group? for the people that you meet with, for your wider church family. And as we pray these prayers, we can trust that God will be at work to transform us to be the kind of church that he wants us to be, a gospel church. Let me pray, and I'm going to pray these words for us from verses 9 to 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And we pray that so that we may be able to discern what is best. And so that we may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And we pray it for the glory and praise of God. Amen.